0: You're listening to the DOGS program, and the DOGS stand for the Defence of Government Schools, and we've been here on 3CR since 1987. And we hope that you will keep listening to us because we have a very interesting program. Those of you who know anything about education funding will have noticed that in the papers lately, the state school interests have actually been getting a reasonable run, even, glory be, And Mr. Murdoch's papers, The Herald Sun. It is starting to become general knowledge that the state schools are underfunded and the private schools are overfunded. And this has been brought home by an even more recent report by Ms. Morris, who was commissioned by the Australian Education Union. And uh, we're going to talk about all of this today in our press release 1003, which will be on our website at www.adogs.info. Over to you, Dale.
1: Thank you, Jean. Press release 1003. The new RORIS report reveals gross public funding favouritism for private schools. So history may not repeat itself, but it surely rhymes. In the 19th century, the public system, which espoused the belief that all children should receive an education, had to battle against uneven taxpayer funding odds given to the private denominational sector. The religious sector's basic ideology is the dividing of children on the basis of class, creed and colour. The public system got off the ground when public funding of the private sector was withdrawn in the final decades of the 19th century. But thanks to the Catholic Church and its political wing, the Democratic Labour Party, which split the Labour Party and kept it out of power for many decades, state aid for private religious schools returned in the 1960s, first as a trickle of easily calculated per capita grants, but later in many billions for both capital and running costs to the exclusive private sector. Australian education is now at a tipping point, tipping back into the gross social, educational, and political inequities of the 19th century. For where else will the newly minted billionaire oligarchs and the aspirational middle classes send their children but a favoured, over resourced, and titled private sector, where over a half of the Albanese cabinet and more than two-thirds of the coalition opposition attended private schools, what does that tell the rest of the population about our democracy? The facts and figures have been surfacing in the mainstream media for some months. Even the Murdoch Melbourne Herald Sun ran an article on November 17 entitled Outdated and Outclassed State Students Funding Divide Laid Bare. But a recent report commissioned by the Australian Education Union has spelt out a few more startling statistics. The RORIS report on the AEU AEU website is summarised as follows. Research reveals widening resource gap between public and private schools. A new report calls for an end to the school funding crisis that has left public schools in every state and the Northern Territory underfunded, while private schools are overfunded by hundreds of millions of dollars each year. The report by education economist Adam Roris found... Public schools will remain underfunded by between $6.2 billion and $6.5 billion a year unless the Commonwealth and state and territory governments significantly lift their investment in new funding agreements due next year. Private schools will be overfunded by almost $3 billion in the next five years. At an aggregate level, private schools receive more than their public funding entitlement in every state and territory except for the Northern Territory. The richest schools in the nation are among the ones that will be the most overfunded by the federal government in the next five years, including Haileybury in Melbourne at $19.1 million, Trinity Grammar in Sydney $14 million, Ivanhoe Grammar in Melbourne $11.5 million, Newington College in Sydney $11.2 million, Brisbane Grammar, eleven million; Loretto Kirribilli in Sydney at ten million dollars; Hales School in Perth at nine point three million, and Pembroke School in South Australia at eight point eight million dollars. The report calls for all public schools to be funded by 2028 to the Schooling Resource Standard, the SRS, which is the minimum level governments agreed more than a decade ago was required to meet the needs of students. Public school systems have been working from a position of extreme underfunding for more than two decades. What is urgently needed is a commitment from the governments to end the funding crisis and move Australian public schools to the point where they have the resources needed so they can realistically deliver on the goals for schooling as expected by the Australian community, the report concludes. AEU Federal President Corinna Haythorpe said the report exposed the shocking inequity of school funding, with only 1.3% of public schools resourced to the SRS, compared to 98% of private schools. That's 1.3% of public schools get the bare minimum funding requirement, compared to 98% of private schools. Shocking. It's if- shocking. It is. If governments can afford to overfund private schools by hundreds of millions each year, they can afford to fund every public school to their own minimum standard, she said. Full funding of public schools is the only way to ensure every child gets opt- every opportunity to succeed. That investment will give teachers more time and support to meet the diverse and complex needs of their students. It will also give them confidence that they can make a real difference without burning out with unsustainable workloads. Public school principals and teachers are doing an amazing job, but they are being asked to do too much with too little. The Albanese government must honour its commitment to full funding and sign bilateral agreements with state and territory governments next year that put an end to the underfunding of public schools by 2028. Only public schools in the ACT are resourced at 100% of the SRS and only the New South Wales government has pledged to fully fund public schools within the next five-year bilateral agreement with the Albanese government. The RORIS report makes clear there are few countries in the developed world that have a more inequitable distribution of resources to schools than Australia. Closing the resources gap is an essential part of closing the achievements gap between children from different backgrounds and its public schools who educate the vast majority of children with higher needs. Full funding will help attract and retain teachers at a time of critical shortage. It will also have huge benefits for the nation, with a recent report concluding that the economic payoff of fully funding public schools would be two to four times the annual cost. Now the dog's position. The dog's position is and always has been quite clear. Taxpayers and citizens cannot and should not have any dealings with a sector which has gamed the system so skillfully since the 1960s. They have systematically made a mockery of any attempts to introduce funding policies based upon genuine needs. They have proven again and again that they cannot be appeased by Appeased politically unless the public treasury is available for every growing demand. They regard our public schools as a waste-basket institution useful for their rejected students only. The denominational system never was, never could be, a system for a democratic society. We pay for these schools. They should be taken over and become public institutions. Those who resist can remain as genuinely independent institutions, and that's independent of government taxpayer funding. Back to you, Jean.
0: Thank you very much. And and of course... The other side of all this is they're supposed to be religious institutions, but in fact the more money these institutions have got, the less of their adherents are on the uh, pews every Sunday. There was a very interesting ABC program during the week. It was interesting. They, they followed through the state aid history of the 60s and 70s and they were arguing that, in fact, the only place that people these days actually here have any Christian teachings in the secondary school of these, um, these elite institutions which says something for Christianity. I'd say that uh, it's got nothing much to do with what Christ was on about, but uh, it's a very sad situation indeed, both for uh, genuine Christians and uh, for the schooling system of Australia. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with Andy, who's going to tell us a little bit more about Mr Albanese's cabinet.
1: Panoply, panorama, panpipe... only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Well, we hope you're
0: still listening to the Dogs Program. We've given you our, our press release for this week and now Andy is going to tell you about a very interesting article about Albanese's cabinet when I went to school. Over to you,
2: Amy. Thanks, Jean. As figures reveal public schools are underfunded by more than $6 billion a year, unpublished research shows politicians are twice as likely as the general public to be privately educated. Less than half of Albanese's cabinet went to state schools. As part of her research into the educational backgrounds of Australia's politicians, Jen Feach looked at the number of current federal politicians who had attended elite private schools. She was a Surprised at what she found, less than half of the Albanese cabinet went to a public school. Across the parliament, features unpublished research found only about one in three members and senators graduated from state schools. In Labor, less than half went to public schools. In the coalition, it is well under a third. Put another way, Australian politicians are privately educated at a rate almost double that of the general populace, now about 35%, which is itself extraordinarily high by world standards. When these politicians went to school several decades ago, they were even more 18 18- typical, given only about 20% of children attended private schools at the time. Feech, an associate lecturer with the School of Education at Murdoch University, is now tallying where politicians choose to educate their children. Anecdotal evidence suggests an even larger proportion of their offspring are in the non-government sector, although this data is hard to gather. The fact that two-thirds of our federal politicians lack personal experience of public schools is worth bearing in mind when considering the inequities of the Australian school sector. According to a report by education economist Adam Rorris, commissioned by the Australian Education Union and released last weekend, public schools are currently underfunded by more than $6 billion a year. Private schools, in contrast, are overfunded and will continue to be overfunded by almost $3 billion a year over the next five years. Those inequities are not hard to see. To cite just one, the Scots College in Sydney, the nation's fourth most expensive school, where Shadow Defence Minister Andrew Hastie was a student and his father served on the school council. Four years ago, the school decided to knock down its library and build a new $29 million student centre, described in the Sydney Morning Herald as being modelled on an extravagant Scottish baronial Castle. The project remains incomplete, however. According to the Herald, one cause of the delay was difficulty acquiring sandstone and slates from Scotland. Meanwhile, says Dr Emma Rowe, Senior Lecturer in Education at Deakin University, state schools struggle to provide the most basic amenities. Rowe is engaged in a project talking to state school principals in various Australian jurisdictions, Victoria, Queensland, the Northern Territory and New South Wales, about the difficulties they face and the reasons more and more of them are quitting. We spoke to principals from low SES schools, high SES schools, very remote schools, metropolitan schools. Every single principal I spoke to said that schools are underfunded to quite a critical serious extent, she says. This is not underfunding for luxury items or things that you might think would be nice. These are things such as a functioning roof that keeps the water out, windows that open, toilets that work, or even a playground in a primary school, which I would think is kind of a fundamental. Outdoor dry space so kids have somewhere to sit when it gets wet or functioning heaters that was a common one Principals are spending a lot of time writing competitive applications for funding, so this always happens in the weekends or in the evenings. One that took me by surprise, they actually have to apply for additional funding for students who have a diagnosed disability. Rose says well-resourced schools typically produce good academic results, but there is a point beyond which extra resources do not improve educational outcomes. Having a library in a castle, she says, that's not going to actually make any difference to those kids' outcomes. Penny Allman-Payne, a Green Senator for Queensland, worked almost Her entire career, apart from a few years as a lawyer, in the state school system. She is also one of the few parliamentarians who was educated in a state school. She recites a long list of symptoms of a failing system students being sent home at lunchtime on Friday afternoons due to lack of teacher capacity, the 50 hour plus weeks she and other teachers, including her husband and daughter, put in, plus weekends, burnt-out teachers applying to go part-time or quitting, vital technology simply not available for students. When we had COVID and the shutdown, in the school that I was at, over half the kids either didn't have an iPad or a laptop, or they didn't have an internet connection, she says. Private schools were totally fine. They just went online. We had to go to paperbacks for these kids. I've taught in a demountable classroom in Queensland in summer. Try teaching a class of Year 8 maths on an afternoon when the temperatures hit 33, 34 degrees and you're in a non-insulated demountable and see how much learning you get out of those kids. It's not just the overwork that leads many teachers to quit, she says, but the frustration of standing in front of classes knowing they can't deliver all the students' need. What does under-resourcing look like? It looks like me being a head of department, spending $3,000 a year out of my own pocket on resources for my kids in my classes, for buying teacher editions of textbooks for teachers in my staff room because we couldn't afford it in our budget. It means teachers, I kid you not, having to work out down to the page how many pieces of paper they think they're going to need to give their kids in their classes next year, she says. This is systemic and persistent underfunding and under-resourcing over a decade or more, and it's teachers and kids who pay the price for that. And it's brutal. The story of how Australia got to this point began with religious sectarianism about 60 years ago. The Catholics wanted their own schools, but state governments, which were responsible for all education funding, were reluctant to fund them. The Commonwealth eventually stepped in, first with some one-off grants and then with recurrent funding. This grew into an odd system whereby the states mostly fund public schools and the federal government mostly funds private schools. The seeds of inequity were there from the start because the system allowed schools to both receive government money and charge students. Over time, some, but not all, non government schools became extraordinarily wealthy, tapping money from both sources. As of 2021, total government spending on schools was $61.26 billion. About 61% of the money, or $37.4 billion, came from the states and 23.8 billion from the federal government. On top of this, private schools raised an extra 11.6 billion from fees, charges and parent contributions and almost 1.7 billion dollars from other private sources. In that year, the 100 richest non-government schools alone recorded $4.8 billion in revenue. Data supplied to the Federal Department of Education in response to questions from the Greens showed $776 million of that money came in the form of funding from the Commonwealth and state governments, enough, according to Allman Payne, to make up the annual funding shortfall in the public school systems of Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory. The existing regime is not remotely fair. Taxes paid by people on lower incomes go to subsidising schools to which they could never afford to send their own children. However, changing the system is politically dangerous. The last politician to seriously attempt reform was Mark Latham when he was opposition leader almost 20 years ago. The more segregated schooling is... The worse the underachievement of low SES kids is going to be. So to the extent that private schooling is growing, then that's driving segregation even more. He proposed to cut five hundred and twenty million dollars of federal government funding to sixty-seven of the nation's richest private schools over five years, and to freeze funding at existing levels for one hundred and eleven others. The savings from this were to be redistributed among the most needy government and non-government schools. Then Prime Minister John Howard, whose funding model served to widen the divide between rich and poor, caused called. Latham's proposal, class warfare. The wealthy private schools warned of fee hikes and a flight by students to the government system which would not be able to cope. The plan was savaged in the conservative tabloid media, which called it a hit list. Latham lost the 2004 election. Ever since, politicians have devoted a a great deal of energy to studying the problem and doing little to address it. In 2010, the Gillard Labor government commissioned a major review led by businessman David Gonski. It recommended all government funding be sector-blind and needs-based. It stated all schools should have the same base funding, plus extra loadings according to the relative disadvantage of their students. On the basis of Gonski, something called the Schooling Resource standard was established. It is an estimate of how much total public funding a school needs to meet its students' educational needs, made up of a base amount and up to six needs based loadings. The Commonwealth funds 20% of each government school's SRS and 80% of each non government school's SRS. The big flaw, which makes the whole thing vastly more expensive, is that Gillard, frightened of the consequences of taking money from wealthy schools, promised no school would lose a dollar. More than a decade later, Australia has made negligible progress towards the more equitable funding model proposed by Gonski. As Karina Haythorpe, Federal President of the Australian Education Union, noted when the RORIS report was released last Sunday, only 1.3% of public schools are resourced according to the SRS, compared with 98% of private schools. If governments can afford to overfund private schools by hundreds of millions of dollars each year, they can afford to fund every public school to their own minimum standard, she said. While rich schools are building heated pools for their athletes and concert halls for their music students, Australia's overall educational performance continues to slide. The Government has commissioned yet another expert committee to examine the issue, ahead of the renegotiation of funding arrangements, which will be on the agenda when Federal and State Education Ministers meet next month. The final report is not yet public, but a consultation paper is, and it shows a rapidly widening education gap between students from high and low socio-economic backgrounds. In 2008, there was a learning gap of 1.4 years between high and low SES students at Year 3, increasing to 4.4 years at Year 9. By 2022, the gap had grown to 2.3 years for Year 3 and 5.1 years at Year 9. The consultation paper notes 51% of students from disadvantaged backgrounds attend schools with students from similar backgrounds. That is, poverty is clustered in certain schools. This is one of the highest concentrations in the OECD, and disadvantage is rapidly becoming more concentrated, the paper states. Indeed, an OECD comparison from 2018 showed the concentration of disadvantaged students was growing faster in Australia than in any other of the 36 OECD countries, except the Czech Republic. The consultation paper said students from priority equity cohorts such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, students living in regional, rural and remote locations, students with disability and students from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds are three times more likely to fall below minimum standards. According to the paper, in 2022, almost a quarter of Australia's 4 million students, 22.5%, had a disability. More than a quarter were enrolled in remote or regional areas. Another 6.3% were Indigenous. This represents an enormous number of children likely to fall below minimum standards. In 2017, the paper said 83% of students from high socioeconomic backgrounds completed high school. By 2021, this had risen to 84.8%. However, for students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, the rate was 76% in 2017 and fell to 74% by 2021. Laura Perry, a professor at the School of Education at Murdoch University, notes supporters of the status quo often argue it is all about choice, but what she calls the neoliberal market model of school education actually serves to limit the choice of most parents, which ultimately works to the detriment of all. When you make schools very unequal, very different, you're basically forcing parents into a decision, she says. In terms of fee-charging private schools, Australia has one of the largest proportions, if not the largest proportion, of students in the OECD. Many parents, she argues, would rather not be paying private school fees, but feel they have no choice. Recent polling commissioned by the Greens underlines the point. A survey of more than 1,000 parents found 48% would look to move their child out of the private system if government schools were better funded. The corollary of more relatively well-off students leaving the government sector, says Perry, is that there is a large and growing number of schools with high concentrations of disadvantaged students. And the difference in resources between these schools that have a high SES profile and those that have a low SES profile is greater in Australia than any other OECD country other than Turkey and Mexico, she says. Concentrating these students, segregating them or clustering them is going to dampen their achievement. If they were mixed in other schools, their achievement would be higher. Lots of research has shown that. It's a very robust finding. Perry is currently finalising work comparing outcomes in Canada and Australia. Australia and Canada have very similar immigrant profiles, similar rates of urbanisation, similar rates of poverty, similar rates of income inequality, etc., she says. Yet Canada performs significantly better on international measures of student achievement. Perry blames segregation. The data shows that high SES students in both countries perform the same, but low SES students in Canada perform substantially better than in Australia. The higher achievement of the lower SES students in Canada is what then lifts up their national average, which is why they outperform Australia, she says. If Australia wants to be the top performing country, which governments have said for the last 10 years we want to be, what they need to do is reduce the achievement gap. The more segregated schooling is, the worse the underachievement of low SES kids is going to be. So to the extent that private schooling is growing, then that's driving segregation even more. Whether that's the only factor that's accounting for lowering our scores, I doubt it. It is, however, a significant factor and one that needs a systemic response. One solution would be to do as numerous other countries do and simply give schools a choice. They can charge fees, in which case they don't get government money, or they can be government funded, in which case they can't charge fees. Perry thinks that wouldn't fly in Australia, given our history and the size of the private sector, not to mention the lobbying power of the sector and the significant over-representation of old boys and girls in the country's parliaments. If she were running education policy, Perry says, she would do something more pragmatic. First, she would give the state schools more money to get them up to a reasonable resourcing standard. In this model, private schools would continue to charge fees, but those fees would influence government funding. If the fees a school charged were less than the school resourcing standard, then it would be eligible for public funding to meet the gap, and for private schools that charge in excess of the school resource standard, they would receive no public funds. This seems eminently fair, although it might lead to the construction of fewer baronial castles and other such monuments to privilege. Now, this article was first published in the printed edition of the Saturday paper on November the 25th uh, under the headline, exclusive, less than half of Albanese's cabinet went to state schools. Now, back to you, Jean.
0: Well, thank you, Andy. That's very enlightening. Yeah, but We'll have a bit of a break and then Sorrell's going to tell us about 100 wealthiest schools and what they earned in 2021.
3: Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
0: We're back here with the Dogs Program. We hope you're still with us. And uh, Sol is going to enlighten us on these 100 wealthiest schools and what they earned. Over to you, Sol.
3: Thanks, Jean. So this article was written by Caitlin Cassidy and it is entitled Australia's one hundred wealthiest schools earned almost four point eight billion in twenty twenty one data reveals. Australia's one hundred wealthiest schools have a combined income of four point eight billion in twenty twenty one data reveals, as calls grow for the federal government to urgently address inequity in the education system. About $767 million of that income came from government funding, the rest from fees, private contributions and donations. The Greens estimate it would cost an additional $6.6 billion a year to ensure all public schools in Australia are fully funded. Under the Schooling Resource Standard, SRS, a needs-based model introduced after the Gonski review in 2011 to provide a baseline education to students. An estimated $13,060 is needed for primary students and $16,413 for secondary students but the data from the department of education via questions on notice provided exclusively to guardian australia by the greens shows australia's 10 wealthiest schools bank in excess of $40,000 per student annually more than double the srs macquarie grammar school in sydney's cbd received the highest funds per student 59,383 in 2021 or $3.6 million in total. Fees accounted for $2.9 million of its revenue, with state and federal government funding accounting for 715778 The rest came from private sources. Sydney Grammar and Christ Church Grammar in Melbourne ranked second and third, both receiving in excess of $50,000 per student annually, while Sydney Schools St Joseph's College and S-C-E-G-G-S, Darlinghurst, ranked 4th and 5th respectively. Cranbrook, Ashcam, Coroa Anglican Girls School, Kembala and Loreto Kirribilli completed the list. Victoria had the most schools in the wealthiest 100, 41, followed by New South Wales, 39, and then Western Australia, 9. Queensland and South Australia had 5 each, whilst one, Canberra Grammar, was in the ACT. None were in the Northern Territory, which, on its current trajectory, will never reach the SRS. The Greens School's spokesperson, Penny Alman payne said the data highlighted the inherent absurdity of our school funding model. It defies logic that private schools that are pocketing $40,000 or $50,000 per student in fees are still subsidised from the public purse, she said. The 100 top private schools by parent contributions also banked a quarter of a billion dollars in funding from government in 2021. That's enough to close the combined annual public funding shortfall of South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Labor's review to inform the next five-year national school reform agreement was handed down to education ministers at the end of October. The review, which will inform future bilateral funding agreements, will be released publicly next month. Peak bodies, including the Australian Education Union and Save Our Schools, say the next agreement must commit to fully funding public schools by 2028. A report commissioned by the union and released on Sunday suggested, unless reforms were taken, public schools would be underfunded by more than 6 billion per year, amounting to about 39 billion by 2028. Under the current model enacted by the coalition, the Commonwealth has until 2029 to bring overfunded independent schools down to their SRS benchmark, with underfunded public schools to have their funding increased over the same period. The federal government contributes 20% of the SRS target to public schools, with states and territories making up the rest. The lead author of the report, Adam Rorris, found that in 2023 alone, private schools were overfunded by about $800 million in excess of the SRS, while public schools had a shortfall of $4.5 By 2028, Roris said private schools will remain cumulatively overfunded by just short of $3 billion. He said the gap spoke to the injustice and inequity of governments pleading poor, while putting aside money for elites. The private school lobby is very effective and has been able to preserve and defend its privileged overfunded status while public schools haven't been able to get minimum funding, he said. It's a benevolence to privilege and stinginess to those crying out for the resources to get some of the most vulnerable children the minimum educational outcomes. Some of the most expensive private schools in the country were also the most overfunded. Penley and Essendon Grammar and Halebury were expected to be more than $19 million overfunded by the Commonwealth by 2028, Roris found while Loreto Kirribilli, the sixth wealthiest school in the country, was expected to be overfunded by about $10 million. There's a massive inequity there, he said. Public schools have about 80% of the lowest quartile students. It makes a mockery of Australia as the land of the fair go. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, said Labour was committed to get every school on a path to 100% of its funding level and would consider timelines while negotiating the next agreement in 2024. Funding is important, but so is what it's spent on, he said. The current funding agreement doesn't include targets or reforms to help close the education gap. The next agreement will. Back over to you, Jean.
0: Yes, some schools apparently are never, ever, ever satisfied not even with billions of dollars, uh, so much so that uh, up there in New South Wales, because the New South Wales Teachers Federation have got a bit of a pay rise for the teachers, the private schools say, oh, just a minute, we should charge a bit more fees. But, of course, fees keep the hoi polloi out of these schools. Over to you, Dale.
1: Thanks, Jean. I've got an article from the Sydney Morning Herald by Christopher Harris called... The private school raising fees by almost 10%. So one of Sydney's private schools will hike fees by almost 10% next year to cover the rising costs of teachers' wages, spiralling inflation and a projected reduction in government funding this decade. Waverley College in Sydney's east had one of the sharpest rises of any school yet to release its 2024 fee schedule with costs to jump by 9% or almost $2,000 for year 12 students to $20,900 in 2024. Principal Graham Letty said a shortfall in government funding was partly behind the fee rise. Due to a cumulative reduction of $27 million in Commonwealth and state government funding until 2029, as well as a competitive pay increase for New South Wales public school teachers, we have made the difficult decision to marginally increase our tuition fees in 2024, Letty said. The slight increase in fees Commencing 2024 will ensure that we can continue to offer both staff and students the very best education and environment possible. A new system introduced from 2022 began taking parents' tax income data to generate a more accurate capacity to contribute score for each school. For some schools, the amount of taxpayer funding they receive has been altered accordingly. Some schools have seen a reduction in funding. Trinity Grammar in Summerhill has not yet decided... By how much fees would rise next year, but indicated the school had to offer competitive salaries if it wanted to retain staff. Trinity's budget preparation process will continue. The increase in salaries for New South Wales state school teachers is necessarily part of that, given non-government schools will need to continue to offer competitive salaries in order not only to attract, but also to retain teachers of the highest calibre, it said. The King's School in North Parramatta will raise Year 12 fees by 5% to $43,560 per year, while boarding charges will jump 6% to $33,200 per year bringing the total cost to $76,760. For parents of students in other years, the technology fee has jumped to $1,600, the lunch bill for day boys will increase to $2,080 and the year six camp is expected to set parents back $1,276. A spokesman said the school council was also mindful of the financial commitment made by families when they enrolled their child at the school. Balancing the need to ensure that the school school can continue to provide The education families expect while minimising fee increases is a key focus of the school council, he said. Independent Education Union New South Wales Deputy Secretary Carol Matthews said some schools were offering teachers pay rises in a bid to keep them after those in the public system were given a significant pay bump, which saw more experienced teachers' salaries increase to $122,100 dollars. There would be some teachers in independent schools who would be earning less than their counterparts in government schools. Some of those schools have decided they have to pay extra money to attract and retain staff, Matthew said. Association of Independent Schools of New South Wales Chief Executive Marjorie Evans said salaries were about 70% of a school's overall costs, but there had been other price hikes schools had to grapple with. Schools are along with many other organisations, have been significantly impacted by the increase in operational costs, including salaries and IT costs, such as cybersecurity over recent years. The sharp rise in school fees is not expected to dampen demand for private schools, according to the head of behavioural and industry economics at National Australia Bank, Dean Pearson. Historically, parents are most reluctant to cut back on education for the their children. And the waiting list for these schools are still incredibly high, he said. A Consumer Insights survey conducted last year by the bank found one in 10 parents relied on family members, such as grandparents, to fund private school. If you look at the people who are doing financially better at the moment, it is the over 65s who have savings, who have money in the bank, Pearson said. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, that's enough about these private schools. Let's have a break, and then we'll go overseas with Geoff. Well, we hope you're still listening to the dogs because Jeff's going to take us overseas to some bad news in the United States and some good news from the UK. Over to you, Jeff.
4: Thanks, Jean. We're just going to go first to a report that comes in on... The 74, which is a non-profit news network that focuses on school choice issues in the United States, uh, co-founded by the CNN, host Campbell Brown, and it refers to 74 million children in America under 18 years of age. And on The 74, there's a really good article, well it actually appeared first in Pen America, which is another organisation over there, it's by Beth Hawkins, and it is a report 1.3 million teachers, 100,000 professors now under educational gag orders. Free speech advocates say backers of limiting education speech are using polls to sharpen tactics. They predict 2024 bills will target students too. This is from the 19th of November. The author is Beth Hawkins. So far this year, she says, 110 bills seeking to restrict discussion of race, US history, and LGBTQ people in schools and colleges have been introduced into state legislatures, and 10 became law, according to a new report from the free speech watchdog group PEN America. They're based in New York, um, they represent writers. Added to 20 such bills passed in 2021 and 22, 10 executive orders and state state agency mandates, there are now 40 legal restrictions on educator speech in 21 states. This refers to them gagging teachers, stopping them from talking about ideologically controversial questions of race and LGBTQI issues and things like that. Anyway, the article goes on. Penn estimates 1.3 million kindergarten to year 12 teachers, and 100,000 public college and university professors are now affected, as are millions of students. The analyst traces how proponents of what Penn calls education gag orders have adjusted their tactics over the last three years. The authors say this reveals both rising public opposition to the laws and efforts by the restrictions' right-wing backers to steer around political flashpoints. As a result, they say, they expect more and more draconian bills in 2024 – What we've seen this year is that people who are advocating for these laws are not going to stop because the poll numbers are bad. They're not going to stop because some parts of the laws have been struck down by the courts. They're going to continue, said Jeremy Young, Program Director of Penn's Freedom to Learn initiative. They're going to continue to evolve these laws in more and more insidious ways. This is an ongoing crisis, he adds, and it will continue until these laws are defeated in the courts or at the ballot box or in the legislature consistently. Backers of the Measures argue that parents of kindergarten to 12 students need more control over what their children are exposed to in school and that colleges should not foster discussion of divisive concepts. Teaching about race, history, gender and sexual minorities and other topics, they say, pressures students to adhere to an ideology and tramples the free speech rights of those who disagree. If we do not act now, I fear we will continue down the path of servitude to a woke agenda from which there may be no return. That's uh, Republican State Senator Jerry Serino argued in support of a 2023 Ohio bill still under consideration that would ban speech on a number of topics. This bill isn't even law yet, but it's already served as an agent of change. How much of the broader public agrees and is comfortable imposing restrictions on educators varies greatly depending on the topics at issue, the age of the students in question and how the measures are framed, Penn's analysis found. The report traces the genesis of the movement to curtail the instruction to the former President Donald Trump's September 2020 denunciation of to- toxic propaganda, including the classroom materials based on the 1619 Project, the New York Times and journalist Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones' history of the race in America. Three months later, the first state bill to curtail what teachers could say about race was introduced in Mississippi. The vast majority of the speech restricting measures introduced in 2021 and 2022, focused on stopping instruction involving race and history and divisive concepts in kindergarten to 12 schools and colleges, often targeting both in the same piece of legislation. By contrast, in 2023, no bills simultaneously focused on the K-12 and university levels. 39 of this year's measures were aimed solely at shutting down discussion of LGBTQ people and topics in elementary and high schools, most modelled after the Florida law that critics refer to as the Don't Say Gay Act, The laws have been cited by people demanding book bans and in the elimination of anti-bullying efforts. More bills are expected in 2024, and Penn believes that some will go much further. This year, for the first time, some of the proposed measures took aim at individual speech. The report notes, with Oklahoma bill to prohibit students from disclosing their LGBTQ identity, and one in Ohio that would mete out disciplinary sanctions for college students or faculty who violate the intellectual diversity rights of others by discussing topics such as allyship, diversity, social justice, sustainability, systemic racism, gender identity, equity, or inclusion. So a dean who sends out an email cheering for a new sustainable roof on the Environmental Sciences Building would be violating the law because he's expressing an institutional position on sustainability, says Young. There are practical reasons why the legislation proposed in 2023 and predicted for next year, in which many cases use identical language, suggesting increased coordination across states. This could be related to Project 2025, I'm guessing, but anyway, you can look that up. Uh, will be harder to fight than the laws previously enacted, he says. Courts are likely to uphold college faculties' free speech rights, but so far, so far advocacy groups trying to overturn bans on LGBTQIA topics have had a hard time meeting the legal threshold for proving plaintiffs have been harmed. Penn's researchers suggest public opinion may be one reason why the backers of the bills have changed ta- tactics and appear poised to do so again next year. Polls consistently show that Americans support teaching older students about race and oppose banning books about the topic. A 2022 survey of the American Public Media Research Lab in Pennsylvania State University found just 13% of respondents believe state lawmakers should have a great deal of influence over classroom discussions or race and slavery. Some of the same surveys, however, found much lower support for exposing kindergarten year 12 students to LGBTQ topics, much Higher partisan divide and disagreement over at what age, if any, such discussions are appropriate. University of Southern California poll last year found that 80% of Democrats say high schoolers should learn about gay rights, sexual orientation, gender identity, or trans rights, while fewer than 40% of Republicans agree. Only about 30% of Americans believe such instruction is appropriate for elementary pupils. One of the researchers behind the USC survey, Morgan Polikoff, agrees that the public opinion probably played a role in the change of tactics among proponents of limiting educator speech. I'd be surprised if that were not true, he says. The pivot is very apparent if you're paying attention. Republicans, he adds, are starting to make inroads with black and Latino voters as a result may be reluctant to continue to describe race as a divisive concept. Pollock also agrees with Penn's assertion that the bill's authors changed the way they targeted speech at college and universities because public opinion data shows that attempts to curtail what professors may say, a centrepiece of many 2021 and 2022 bills, are wildly unpopular. Recent bills propose dismantling faculty unions, senates and other internal groups to protect academic freedom, systems most people have never heard of. For example, a Florida law passed this year weakens faculty hiring and tenure rights and by decreeing that course content may not distort significant historical events or include curriculum that teaches identity politics, makes it virtually impossible for some classes and majors to be taught, critics say. This new breed of legislation is designed to kick the legs out from underneath university governance and autonomy, The Penn Report explains. So the next time the state moves to censor faculty, no one is in a position to push back. So that's the United States at the moment. Things are going downhill big time for public education. Now I'm going to go across to England where there's a good news story by comparison. So things are going in the right direction, it seems, as as far as the dogs would be concerned. This is an article appeared at BBC News, actually, and it's by Simon Dedman and Nick Rigby, uh, dated the 26th of November, and it is that Labor plans could see a steep rise in private school fees. Parents of children at private schools could end up paying thousands of pounds more in fees due to Labor's tax plans a headmaster has warned. So if you don't know, they're planning to pull out the chocks underneath the private schools there, which have been put there by the taxpayer. So now the article goes on, Labor is pledging to charge private schools 20% VAT, as well as ending business rate relief to raise about £1.7 billion if it wins the next election. The party said it's aimed to plough that money into state schools. Terence Ayres, head of the St Nicholas School in Essex, said if it, could, it could mean fees going up by £3,000 a year. Labor leader Sir Keir Starmer has said he wanted to change the rules so that independent schools pay more to government in tax. He said the extra money for state sector would mean mental health staff in every school, more expert teachers in the classroom, more creativity, speaking skills and confidence. Labor has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools, but said it would still remove other unfair tax breaks if it won the next general election, which is due by the end of January 2025 at the latest. There are about 2,500 private schools in England and Wales, and the government says half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means schools cannot operate for a profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, for example, on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they were creating public benefit to maintain their charitable status. So what is a private school over in England? There are about 2,500 private, fee-paying schools in England and Wales. Private schools have more say over how they run themselves. Unlike state schools, they're not paid for by the government, but they charge fees instead which parents or guardians have to pay. About half are registered charities and thus exempt from VAT, like GST for us. About 6.5% of pupils in England go to independent schools according to government figures. Fees at St Nicholas, which is a non-boarding school, day school for pupils from reception to year 11, are about £15,450 per year for its upper school. It's about over $31,000. And Mr Ayers said labour VAT increases would hit parents. There's not much room for us to manoeuvre regarding fees, they say. We ultimately would have to pass the VAT on to our parents, which would have a real impact on them, he said. Mr Ayers said many parents make sacrifices to send their children to the school. Luke Sabetta of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which has written a report on Labor's VAT plans for private schools, said the measure would raise about £1.3 to £1.4 billion, but that is just 2% of current school state spending. So it would add a little bit to the state sector, but it is unlikely to be transformative to really narrow the achievement gap between rich and poor, he added. Rudolf Elliot Lockhart, chief executive of the Independent Schools Association, Said, independent schools play a vital role in providing specialist provision and diversity of settings, whether special education needs, bilingual provision, performing arts schools, or educating within different types of religious ethos. This diversity would be threatened by VAT on school fees, where it will be the smaller and less well known schools that would be most vulnerable to closures. However, Michael Pike, a spokesman for the Campaign for State Education, said the tax exemptions derive from the fact that in law, owing to a historical anomaly, most private schools have charitable status. They are not charities in any meaningful sense of the term, he said. The existing tax exemptions are, in fact, a subsidy from society as a whole to the children of the very rich. Households within the top 10% of incomes provide 50% of all pupils in private schools in England and Labor is right to seek to remove them. The Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has criticised Labour's plans to change the tax rules. The Prime Minister has previously said the policy showed Labor just don't understand the aspiration of families like my parents who are working really hard. Anyway, so that's um, things moving in the right direction in England and definitely the wrong direction in the US. With that, Jean, I'll pass back to you.
0: Well, it's good to get an international perspective, but of course... We are quite parochial. We like to stay in Victoria, but for our great state school, we're going to go off to New South Wales because there was a school there which has always had a very bad reputation, which has had a changing of the guard. And we're now told it's the best school that money can't buy.
4: Every week on The Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show. A different state school is a great school.
1: State schools are great. Schools.
4: School of the
1: week. State school.
4: School are great of the school. week. Great state schools. The state, state schools, schools, schools school
2: are great of the schools. Week. School for the week here on the Dogs program. And this week's great state school of the week is Granville Boys High School, with an enrolment of 590 boys. Now, uh, Granville is next to Parramatta in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, matter of fact, I uh, taught at the other state school close by there, um, Arthur Phillip High School, in 1992, very briefly. <laughs> yeah.
0: So did I back in
2: 1962. Amazing. And look, there even at Arthur Phillip, there was a preponderance of boys' students because there's so many private girls' schools in the area. Yeah. Granville Boys, I think, is a telling example of the concentration of disadvantage that arises from our unfair funding system that we've talked about multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. The Ixia value at Granville Boys is well below average at 937. And what that means is that our parents earning in the top 25% of incomes make up only 6% of the um, school population, and in that second level, um, 50 to 75%, that's 14%. So what that means is that 80% of the students have parents earning below average income, and in fact if we look at the bottom quarter, the lowest 25% of incomes, that accounts for 60% of the students. So it is a school with mainly um, disadvantaged students at the poorer end of our community, and 99% of the students speak a language other than English and 1% Indigenous students. Uh, the finances are recurrent grants from the Australian Government of $2.6 million and the New South Wales Government of 10.3. Fees and parental contributions add $56,000. Other private contributions $82,000. That comes to $23,000 per pupil and the capital is around $670,000 over three years. And uh, what we want to talk about today in particular is the achievement the school has had in robotics. So the school actually um, hosted a regional robotics uh, competition and there were teams from... Um, A whole bunch of private schools, actually Knox Grammar, the King School, Loretto Curabilli, St. Catherine's School, and uh, the Sydney Robotics Academy. Uh, But the Granville Boys High ended up winning the Sportsmanship Award, and five teams from Granville Boys made it to the state championships, which were held on Sunday the 5th of November.
0: That's wonderful. That's
2: just wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. And so at those championships all five teams made it to the finals and played against tough opponents including world champions and one of the uh granville boys teams they call them themselves grand bots um, uh, which consisted of students mamud amud muhammad talib and abdullah Noor were awarded the judges award and then um subsequent to that on the 18th of november Those five uh, robotics teams um, took home a total of four awards at the first LEGO League Robotics Competition, Australia Regionals. And two of those teams, GrandBots 3 and GrandBots 5, have progressed to the first robotics competition, Australia Nationals, on the 2nd of December. And um, one of those teams won a Robot Design Award as well. So it's really a fantastic effort by all students and teachers in, involved and a really great un- outcome for Granville Boys High. So they're delivering outstanding results despite the odds being stacked against them.
0: Thank you so much. And there was a lovely article, wasn't it, about the the best school that money can't buy and what a, a lovely feeling that school has. And actually, the state schools of, of Parramatta from 1962 to now have all got good teachers and A very nice feeling about them too. They're good places to be in. But we've come to the end of our program, listeners, but we'll be back again next week. And uh, if you want to find out more about us, you can go to the website at www.adogs.info. But it's bye for now.
5: I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I am dead Says Joe, but I am dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I went on to organize, went on to organize, from San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find your head. Joe, you're ten years dead.